What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Hey, how'd you make out today? How could you do this to us after everything we've done for you? Oh, see, I made Lewis a bet here. See, Lewis bet me that we couldn't both get rich and put you on the poorhouse at the same time. He didn't think we could do it. I won. We should have known better than to try and pull a fast one on Eddie Murphy, Josh. Good thing we've got the podcasting to fall back on. Indeed. Murphy as Billy Ray Valentine with Don Amici in Trading Places, one of the eligible titles for this week's top five comedies about the rich. And we'll kick off our Elaine May marathon with another comedy about the rich. May's 1971 directing debut, A New Leaf, starring Walter Matthau. That and more. Hear me out, Josh. I still think we can corner the frozen orange juice market. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright bizarre, great stories define us. You should tell yours. With simple tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture your story with a captivating website. Start your free trial today. Visit squarespace.com film. You should Squarespace. And if you are one of those listeners out there, we know many of them are out there already telling your story. We love to feature listener testimonials with links back to your Squarespace-powered websites, like the one we featured last week, Josh, calgarycinema.org. If you want your site featured, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. We'll see if Arthur or any of the Royal Tenenbaums, maybe Alicia Silverstone's Cher or Mr. Deeds, will populate our top five comedies about the rich. That's later in the show. Do the Tenenbaums actually have any money? We were kind of debating <laughs> We were that. debating that. I don't know that they do. Well, spoiler alert, I left them out of my top five for that very reason. Okay. Even though they don't seem too concerned about money, the fact is when the patriarch of the family is stealing from one of his sons, maybe they're not all that well to do. We'll also get to our Elaine May Marathon here in just a second. But first, we did want to take a second to pay tribute to a filmmaker whose name has been on our marathons page at filmspotting.net as a potential topic for far longer than Elaine May has, actually, and that's Jacques Rivette. He passed away on Friday, January 29th at the age of 87. He was part of the famed French New Wave of filmmakers and, like other members of the New Wave, Godard, Truffaut, Romer, Claude Chabrol. He was on the staff of the influential Cahiers du Cinéma. Truffaut actually said of Rivette, this was quoted in the New York Times obituary for Rivette, Francois Truffaut was quoted as saying he was the most fanatical of all our group of fanatics. Now, Josh, maybe one of the reasons why Rivette's name hasn't crept up that list and actually become a marathon topic yet, because obviously he's deserving in terms of his regard as a filmmaker and the fact that he is a blind spot for the both of us, sadly. We're not familiar really at all with his work. The reality is he is known for making some challenging films, even the ones that are popular or considered accessible. You look at something like Celine and Julie Go Boating, which came out in 1974. It's three and a half hours long, and it has long stretches where the two young women of the title watch a hallucinatory melodrama play out in front of them. It sounds fascinating to me, but I could see how as we're trying to squeeze this into a marathon, it might prove 
just a little bit difficult. What are your thoughts? Well, that three plus hours running time, that's a bit of an issue for us with exactly. marathons as well. Yeah, so. 1991's The Beautiful Troublemaker is four hours long. Maybe they're not all quite that lengthy, Josh, and we'll see if we feel compelled to truly dive into a Rivet Marathon here at some point after we talk with our special guest who is joining us by phone from L.A., we were looking for a guest to come on and talk about Rivet, and it just worked out perfectly that I realized the person I wanted to speak to, Josh, was also a real ardent supporter of Elaine May and her film. So we're going to hit two birds with one stone here as we bring in Peter Labuza. He is the host of the Cinephiliacs podcast and is a freelance critic who has written reviews for a variety of different outlets. He's also a longtime friend of the show, Peter Labuza. Peter, thank you for joining us tonight. I'm glad to be here, guys. How are you guys doing? We're doing all right. Yeah, doing and, well. Yeah, Thanks we're, for joining us, Peter. Yeah, and we're eager to talk with you about Jacques Rivette. As I was thinking about who a good guest would be to come on, your name really did come to mind because I've seen some comments on social media, on Letterboxd over the past year or so, and I know this is a filmmaker that you've really embraced, and I'm curious first how you discovered Jacques Rivette. Well, you know, I wouldn't call myself an expert on him, but definitely I uh, really appreciate his work. I think the first way that I came through to Jacques Rivette was probably in his writing in a Caillou Cinema. Um, Jacques Rivette was part of the French New Wave, and before that he was with Godard and Truffaut and Eric Omer, one of the people who founded Caillou Cinema, and he really wrote some of the seminal essays on Howard Hawks, on Nicholas Ray, on Otto Preminger, these, you know, key figures of American cinema. And then it wasn't until, oh, a few years ago that I was able to finally see one of his films, uh, Celine and Julie Go Boating, which is this really, really playful mystery about two women who are kind of running around Paris creating magic, and then they insert themselves into a 19th century Henry James mystery novel and basically mess around with the plot. I mean, his success as a filmmaker was much smaller than someone like Godard and Truffaut, who we know really, really well. And part of that is the obscurity of his work. But kind of wanting to search that out kind of elevated him, I think, in my mind and a lot of other people's minds. And just trying to find these films, which are really sometimes hard to find, and especially the writing by Jonathan Rosenbaum on Rivette really opened him up to me as I tried to build up my filmography of this really, really special filmmaker. What would you say, Peter, when you look back on his legacy now makes him stand out, not just among, I guess both, maybe both among filmmakers in general, but also in terms of the French New Wave, you know, what, what unique presence he had there also? You know, Rivette is this really interesting filmmaker who seems you're not sure whether when you're watching one of the films, if you're going to classify it as documentary or as kind of fantasy. They kind of blend the line in that way because they're relying on the performances of the editing tricks to make films that take place in these realistic settings really become magical. I mean, a lot of the narratives sort of follow a group of often actors who are improvising their roles and kind of create various make-believe, or there's some sort of mysterious conspiracy at the center of them that the characters become obsessed about. It's kind of a lot of similar to, like, the 70s paranoia films, but there's never really any solution at the end of it, but you become really, really obsessed. And I think the way that he really worked with actresses in particular, he collaborated with a number of actresses over his years, uh, Julia Perteau, Boulet Augia, and her daughter Pascal, Sandra Bonaire, these films really rely on their performances in a way that maybe you don't think about with Godard and Truffaut and Romare and the way that they just kind of act out 
their lines. You know, Rivette would talk about that he didn't care as much about what the actors are saying than how they were saying it than the emotions they brought to that. And I think that's part of the way that you get obsessed in these Rivette films, especially when you're following rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And, you know, Adam might not be excited to hear this, but some of these films end up becoming that long because you just keep going and going and yeah. going. You know, sometimes there's three hours, sometimes there's six, or in the case of one of his films, At One, it runs a whopping 13 hours. But I wow. think there's an enveloping mystery that you become obsessed with with the characters as you follow them. And because they're playful in this way, there's still a joy in watching how the actors create or investigate the fantasy world that they're really working in instead of relying on, say, special effects or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, right before we brought you on, actually, I mentioned how you look at some of the films like The Beautiful Troublemaker, like Celine and Julie Go Boating, and just at the length, forgetting what the content is like or going down all those different rabbit holes and maybe... Those are reasons why we haven't yet embraced a Jacques Rivette marathon, even though his name has been on the list of potential directors that we really want to explore. And so I guess my question for you is, if we were to embark on a Rivette marathon, or if there are listeners out there who don't trust that we will ever get to it and want to embark on their own, where would you tell us to start? What's essential? I mean, there's so many, but the kind of the problem that I think that been why a lot of people don't know Rivette that well is because a lot of the films you can't buy as DVD in North America. So you're saying so we're like off the film. hook, Peter. <laughs> exactly. You've given us but, a pass. You know, a film like Celine and Julie Go Boating, which you know I think is the easiest place to start, you can only get in Europe. But the film's sort of spiritual sequel called Le Pont du Nord is really fantastic. Again, it's about two women who are solving a mystery in Paris, kind of while the city is being torn down. A film like Duel and Noir, it's these pair of a film noir and a pirate film he made. Um, they are, I'll just say, run about two hours each, and they're really fantastic. And then I think but maybe the best place to go is uh, his debut film, Paris Belongs to Us. It's the sort of Hitchcock mystery involving a Shakespeare troupe in the CIA. It's on Hulu, and it's coming to Criterion in March. And, you know, I think out one in its 13 hours kind of seems a little daunting, but it is broken into eight parts, so you can kind of watch it like a TV show. And that's one, again, that follows a conspiracy and follows two different troops going through Aquia. So, hmm. you know, it's one of those filmmakers, I think, if you find any of his films, that's kind of the best reason to check it out because they are kind of hard to pick apart, especially if you live in one of these cities where they might come around in a traveling screening. That's going to be possibly the best way to see one of his films. Mm -hmm. Fantastic stuff. Thank you, Peter, for that. You are here pulling double duty because mm -hmm. we didn't have you on just to talk about Rivette, but another filmmaker I know you have discovered, I think, just over the past few years and have come to really love is Elaine May, who we are doing a marathon, actually starting here with this conversation. And I thought, actually, you might be enough of an expert on Elaine May to kind of get us rolling with the marathon and maybe set up for us our conversation about A New Leaf. So what do you want to say about May in general? What do you want to say specifically about A New Leaf for us to consider? I, I mean, Elaine May is totally hilarious, and it's kind of one of those surprises of why we haven't really embraced her films. You know, you just kind of, the first time I saw one, I was just laughing in stitches, and it was kind of like this just 
big revelation for me. So I think I'd start off with just some background in Elaine May. She began at the University of Chicago, and she is part of a group called the Compass Theater, which a lot of people talk about as one of the seminal improv groups that eventually became Second City in Chicago. Their most famous members were, of course, Elaine May and Mike Nichols, who then went on to do Nichols and May, this Broadway and sometimes television show. And they really were known for their very, very funny banter. And they were hugely popular. To give an example, um, when Marilyn Monroe performed her famous uh, Happy Birthday song to JFK, Nichols and May were actually also one of the sketches that happened during that night. Hmm. So May has this very strong theater and especially improvisation background. And if you see any of the Nichols and May stuff, which you can find on YouTube, I think their best bits are these bits that sort of teeter the line between being really, really funny and you thinking that the two people are about to tear each other apart. So the humor kind of emerges out of like this laugh that you catch in a cough at the same time because you're not sure if you're supposed to be horrified or you're supposed to be belly laughing. Welcome to Long Dust. Can I help you? Yes, I read your ad. I'm interested in the $65 funeral. Was that for yourself? No. For another. Uh, may I ask, where did you catch that ad? TV Guide. Just trying to find out where our trade comes from. So I think one thing I want you guys to pay attention to in A New Leaf in the four films is how this improvisation mood really works. Not so much in that the lines are being improvised, but how the tone is sort of teetering on that way. And you really get caught up in the immediacy of, is this funny or is it terrifying? And then the second thing I think, you know, what's going to be important is I think this is the first marathon you guys have done where you're looking at a female filmmaker. And I think what's interesting is Elaine May was kind of rejected by the first wave of feminist film criticism coming out of the 70s and 80s. I think part of this was that May was known as kind of a control freak. Her films went over budget. They went over long. Some of them were taken from her and re-edited. Um, not so dissimilar to the kind of stuff that we talk about with like Scorsese and Coppola in the 70s at the same time. But I think because of her gender, a lot of feminist film critics rejected her because they thought that she closed a lot of the doors. And I think one other thing is that she doesn't necessarily portray sympathetic women, but uses the humor of women and this honesty to really get at men. And this is the question that I kind of want to set you guys up on, because I think it's crucial that each one of her four films kind of plays on a classical genre or classical trope of a film that we know, and then turns it by really playing with the male protagonist psyche. So here with A New Leaf, you kind of have this play on bringing up baby in the 30s, comedy of romance and marriage. But I would say is how does May take the character of the Walter Matthau, who's this character who's trying to get married, and flip his male psyche in a way that understands his gender in a different question? And what does it really mean for a female director to portray men in this way? And that's how I would set up this marathon for you guys. Thank you, Professor Labuza. We will <laughs> certainly do our best. That was fabulous. And hopefully we can have you on and do this again sometime, maybe at the end of the marathon. I would love to join, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think of the four films. Thanks a lot, Peter. That was great stuff. All right, let's get into our Elaine May Marathon with a clip from 1971's A New Leaf. Don't treat me as though I were a child, Mr. Beckett. No, I'm not. I, I am just... as aware of what it means to have no capital as you are. Oh, good. good. Now, what about this check? Well, are you entirely sure 
that you really do understand what I mean by capital, Mr. Graham. You see, you've exhausted the capital. I can't cover the check because the check is for $6,000 and you don't have $6,000. In other words, you don't have $60. Come to the point, Beckett. The point, Mr. Graham, is that you don't have any money. The capital and the income are exhausted and you no longer have any money. I wish there was some other way I could say it. What could I, how could I put it? Uh, that money, you have no capital, you have no income, you have, no, it's only money. It's mo no, you have no money. There's, there's no other way to put it, you see. You mean I have no money? Yes, that's what I mean. You have no money. So Peter gave us a lot to chew on, Josh, and I'm not even sure completely where to start, except maybe we should start with just a little bit about the plot, if our listeners didn't pick it up there from that clip and from what Peter said. But Walter Matthau plays a wealthy man who has now discovered that he no longer has any money, and he comes upon the only scheme he can think of with the help of his gentleman butler, his gentleman servant, which is that he should marry a woman, a wealthy woman, and in his mind, maybe even go so far as to murder her so that he will inherit all of her wealth, whereas that gentlemanly butler really just was suggesting, you know, maybe he should actually settle down and find a woman to be with. He doesn't I necessarily have to love her. He's but all in on murder, I think. <laughs> he's definitely, at least the Walter Matthau character, right. is all in on murder. So that's the basic setup. And now, as we reflect on all the things Peter said, did any of those elements really stand out for you? And as he talks about the improvisation, I think he raises a good point that the movie doesn't feel heavily improv to me at all. It feels very tightly scripted, actually. But that notion of the humor having these varying tones and maybe sometimes clashing tones is something I think we can certainly talk about. And then in terms of the feminist aspect to it, that's also not an element that really jumped out to me throughout this viewing of the film, but maybe as we get more into the marathon, it's something that will come to the fore. What are your thoughts? Well, let's start with how the movie actually works, and then we can look at it as maybe a piece of feminist art. I, this thing, I'm probably going to smile the entire time we talk about this because it was such a joy to watch. It's one of those comedies that doesn't have highs and then lulls, you know, where you're waiting for the next comic set piece. Mm -hmm. It's just constantly enjoyably amusing and then it does hit those highs I mean, yeah. there are some pieces we'll probably get to where you are laughing at loud but i just had a smile on my face the whole time i was watching this similar to peter cannot fathom while you're having that experience why and maybe some of the background he gave in terms of trouble studios or mm -hmm. you know turning in longer cuts or whatever oh, we'll talk about that a little bit because it's that, fascinating yeah maybe that comes into play why her career is only four feature films long, but this was just so fun. And the improvisational element of it, I think you can see, especially in the length of scenes, how they're allowed to breathe. There's no rush. It's very patient for a comedy. Yeah. Uh, there isn't a rush for a laugh. There isn't... <laughs> no. A, a scene isn't built around a hit -em line of dialogue. No, it'll go to great lengths to have great a payoff. Lengths. Yeah. And because of the performers here, because of Mathau, and because of May herself, you're willing to follow them no matter how long that scene goes. So May here does play Henrietta Lowell, the woman that Mathau's character zeroes in on. You know, she has no family. She's an heiress. She's ridiculously rich. So he figures he can marry her, knock her off, and then he's sitting pretty. He can get mm -hmm. back into this affluent 
lifestyle. But she has no real natural facility for the sort of affluent lifestyle that he wants to live. She's clumsy. She's more interested in botany and barely notices that she's rich, mm-hmm. basically. And so this she takes the to, bus. She doesn't she rely on her chauffeur. When they first meet, let's talk about the improvisation in the scene where they yeah. first meet. And that's one that felt the most to me like the type of scene that you could have seen Nichols and May maybe play out on a stage. Absolutely. With the teacup and oh, just yeah. how much it's yeah. it's wavering and how it falls and some I of her reactions. I was able to watch a couple yeah. of their sketches and it did remind me of that. And yeah, they're at this society party and um, she's just being klutzy and spills her tea. Wonderful touch that Henry notices from across the room that she's about to spill. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just something there that even though he's an aspiring murderer, yeah. it speaks to a little bit of care and charm no, in him. I have a bunch of those moments. <laughs> that yeah, yeah, that you're on board with him because he notices that and he sees it, she spills, and of course everyone else in the room is up in arms about this, being really snobby about it and the interplay between them among she gets more tea and how he's trying to hold it for her, she doesn't she's trying to hold it correctly and just can't do it. And mm-hmm. that scene, you just have to watch it, won't help to describe it any further, but the way that they play off of each other, let things breathe, let moments happen, wait to see what the other's going to do within the confines of the story. It, it doesn't feel like a sketch in terms of being undisciplined. It completely works. They keep in character, functions in the confines of the narrative at that moment, yet has this looseness and unexpectedness mm-hmm. to it that, that again, makes it just a joy. Yeah, I had a very similar reaction as you to this movie. And thinking about what Peter was saying in terms of some of the, the clanging of the humor, clanging in a good way, where there's almost these contradictory moments. I think about one where... It's the scene where he's really at his most charming, but also maybe his most clumsy because he's trying to propose to her and he's trying to be as affectionate as he can possibly be because he has to seal the deal. Mm -hmm. Right. He's running out of time. And yet when she does something and I wish I had really broken down the scene, but she does something. Maybe it's when she does spill on the carpet. Right. He says something to her in response to something she does or says. It's just like, you idiot, no, right? It, it's really kind of offensive the way, mm-hmm. he, the way he calls her a name. And then he catches himself when she looks up at him. And he's like, no, no. You know, he, he sort of apologizes for it. And you can't help but laugh at just how aggressively mean he was to her in that moment. But also you're a bit horrified that he would talk to her in that way. So there are a lot of moments like that. And I do wonder how this film will set the table for maybe some more interesting discussions about her use of men to make statements about masculinity or femininity as we get through this marathon. I mean, look at a movie like Ishtar. It is about two men, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. Mikey and Nikki is next up in this marathon. Again, a film about two men, Peter Falk and John Cassavetes, I believe, the two men in that film. So certainly she enjoyed exploring that aspect. But just in terms of Henrietta and how her character is portrayed here in the movie, you could look on one hand at how every character in the movie, including our hero, is trying to take advantage of her, whatever that's saying. But beyond that... house staff. That's what I mean. I mean, every character, (laughs) literally, even the people she thinks are her closest confidants, are actually taking advantage of her. But beyond that, she's certainly not in need of a man. Henry kind of just comes into her life. She certainly isn't interested in society's approval. And it seems that while she is not confident in herself. There's no doubt that she's not confident about anything. She is, I think, content 
with who she is she's and what she's passionate about. She's confident in her element, which is botany. Yeah, you know, but she's, even there, she's a professor. And yeah, but even there, she does talk about how she doesn't feel like she has enough confidence to really try to be the best in her field or to submit a new species or something. She's because she's not that ambitious. Confidence. Yeah, That's she's not sure. ambitious. So there is that element. But again, I think there is still a little bit of a contentment. And what I think is interesting is the way Henry comes into her life. She doesn't love him because she's so desperate, but because she genuinely comes to love him, blind as she might be to his true intentions. And I do think that that's where May really succeeds here, is she finds ways to have them connect, to mm-hmm. genuinely connect, even amidst the insanity of this potential murder plot that he is planning. If you didn't know his true intentions and you watched six scenes I could pick, eight scenes I could pick between them, you would think that this was a standard romantic comedy and they were falling in love with each other. That first night together where they spend all night talking in her car, right? I mean, that feels like something out of a more traditional romantic comedy because you really do feel like they are connecting and some of the jokes they make in those scenes come back into play later in the film because they are genuinely having some kind of moment together. What happens if you discover a new species that has never been described or classified? Well, nothing terribly much except that you are, you're listed as its discoverer and the entire species is named after you. Oh, like uh, Parkinson's disease being named after James Parkinson. That's right. Or the Bougainville being named after Louis A. de Bougainville. Or like Brussels sprouts. Yes, that's right. That's right. He's enough of a social animal. This guy, we very clearly get the sense that all he cares about is the lifestyle. I mean, he's he's also, they're both kind of asexual. That that element was Which interesting, is interesting to me. Right, it's yeah. It like, doesn't come into play he's much at all. He's not interested in women at all. He's, he's he just wants to be scared of them. Yeah, he wants to be see. on his own. So, but he's enough of a social animal to make his wooing of her genuine. And in doing that, here's what's interesting. I think in doing that, he surprises himself that perhaps he's open to affection. Perhaps this woman has something to offer him. There's something Mm -hmm. interesting about her. And watching that flower is also delightful. There's another scene that captures what you're talking about where there's a real tenderness in the midst of his ulterior motives and in the midst of the the high comedy going on. And it's, spoiler, their honeymoon night, their wedding night. And she comes out, this comes to play in the asexual (laughs) element a little bit, in this, you know, would-be toga, something that clearly, though she has not expressed much interest in physical effect, Either. No, but, but you can tell she means yeah. it. For, she she's puts on some lipstick. Yes. She's combing her hair. Yeah. She's like, this is what you do on your wedding you night. Consummate so I'm the going, marriage. Yeah. I'm going to do it. And, you know, she she doesn't seem afraid of it like he does, but clearly not an area of expertise. So she gets caught in this nightgown. And this is another extended scene that's allowed to breathe where he goes over to help her. At first, he's a little put off, as he often is initially by her klutziness. Mm-hmm. But then because of the way she plays it by continually getting caught in, he becomes sympathetic yeah. and he becomes helpful yeah. and he becomes tender. And even as we're laughing at this, we see that it is one of these moments you're talking about where they are connecting. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're trying to connect over the first film in our Elaine May Marathon, the first film she co-starred in and wrote and directed, 1971's 
a new leaf. And as we're talking about those moments of connection, Josh, I'll give you at least one more in addition to the nightgown scene. But when they're camping later in the film in the Adirondacks and he's miserable, he's clearly miserable. He's not in his element and it's not going well for him. But he never takes his misery out on her. And in fact, as she's trying to prepare a meal and doing her typically really clumsy job at it, he finally says to her, not really woefully or with any bit of sarcasm whatsoever, I'll make the meals. Yeah, he's I'll, already I'll handle, accommodating. Yeah, I'll handle the meals. But the touch, Josh, is when he just gently grabs her eyeglasses because she somehow has gotten her hands and her glasses in the honey and they're all sticky mm-hmm. and he just takes them off her face and he gently puts them in the water and cleans them off and hands them yeah. back to her. Like, yeah. So there is that bit of interaction between them that I think sets up the end of the film, which we don't want to completely spoil because even though the movie came out in 1971, the fact is we're doing this marathon because we'd never seen this movie right. and we want you to play along and see these movies for yourself. So without giving away too many details, there is a happy ending to this film that perhaps does feel a little bit forced. But I would argue, Josh, it's as forced as you get in a lot of comedies, perhaps not in a lot of dramas, but it worked for me. It certainly worked for me enough. And it worked for me largely because of all those moments of connection I saw throughout Mm -hmm. the film that paid off, but also because I do think there's a moment at the end, it's obvious if you've seen it, where I think he's truly moved by her act of generosity and her act of selflessness. And it's just interesting to consider, Josh, that maybe what we see play out over the course of this movie is a character who, in having to act like he's not bothered by her clumsiness and lack of refinement, he actually becomes someone who isn't bothered by her clumsiness and lack of refinement. He becomes a man who would gently take those glasses off and clean them for her rather than finding her repugnant because she can't help but get her glasses and hands in the honey. In other words, in having to act like her perfect companion, he actually does over the course of the film somehow yes. become her perfect companion. Exactly. And I find that fascinating. Yeah. So so you're you're rooting for them so much that the ending ultimately does work. I think, you know, in the moment it goes a little too soft, a little too quickly, uh, but but you we bought in by that point. So I think maybe the ending also speaks to a little bit and we can get into here her uh, faculties as a director, as a mm-hmm. first-time director, and, and maybe if that's part of the ungainliness. Because I think you can very much tell here that she's, um, you know, she may not be supremely accomplished yet, but she's not disinterested, where sometimes you can see directors who come from a writing background or a performing background where that's clearly where their interests still are. Mm-hmm. And I think while those areas are the strongest in A New Leaf, you can also sense moments where she's really experimenting as the director of the film. Now, mm-hmm. some of those are a little jarring. There's there's like a yeah. close-up of a distasteful character laughing that's you know just a little too much. And the editing in some of the scenes where it tries to almost match witty banter. And it's yeah. just a, a bit of a whiplash. Yeah. But there are I, also these attempts and one that's particularly successful is a shot where Matthau is in close up reading a book about toxicology because he's planning to poison her and then in the in the <laughs> yeah. rear of She's the frame dangling off you the can cliff. see her dangling off the if cliff. If he only paid attention he could push her <laughs> exactly. right off. It's a great trying visual get, joke. Trying to get a plant specimen. And so something like that is just you know it just adds so much to what is already verbally humorous film yeah. and in terms of performance is funny as well. And I, I just want to say quickly too, as we're describing her klutziness, you really have to watch it to get a sense of how delicately 
May plays klutzy. Yeah. Because as you're hearing it and probably picturing it, you're picturing big, right? And that's but it's not, not. That's it's a really not great point. At all. She's, she's just, not a bull in a china who shop. She yeah. Is. yeah. Yeah. You're right. No, that's that's a really good observation. I'll say this about the camera work as well. Aside from those moments that you're referring to that draw a little bit more attention to themselves, I would say there are many examples that show that she knows exactly where to put the camera to capture the moment and knows when it needs editing and when it doesn't. And I think the nightgown scene is a perfect one where it pretty much plays out in a long take Mm -hmm. and a medium long shot. And that's exactly how it needs to play out for us to really see the dynamic and the chemistry between them. But the one before that, I mean, really one of the more subtle, hilarious moments in the film is after he's discovered that he's no longer rich and he comes back to his butler and they're having a conversation about what, what he's going to do. Yeah, say. and the butler the whole time they're talking is still getting him ready as <laughs> if he still has all of the comforts of being a rich man. Like it's like one last time he'll get to indulge. So without even paying attention to it, he's talking and he's getting his slippers put on and like the smoking jacket with the ascot For and all no those one. things. I For mean, no, he exactly. has no relationships. But, but that's it. He's so attached to <laughs> yes. the ritual of yes. it and the refinement of it. That means so much to him. And so even as he's a really despicable character in some ways, there's something you come to appreciate about how dedicated he is to that. Refinement, And I'll just give you an example, too, that really stuck out to me. And this is only as I was rewatching the beginning of the film that this occurred to me. I don't think it's an accident that Elaine May devotes as much attention as she does to his car. The Ferrari. I mean, the opening extended gag of right. the film, right? That That is a little bit too labored, perhaps. But you think he's watching someone he loves being operated on. They're maybe, you know, about to have their last breath, and then the joke is that it's his car that they're looking at. But it's this Ferrari, right? That's a pretty remarkable-looking car. Now, it's a terrible car, actually. He has to get it looked at. It breaks down basically two to three times a week, and as he says... But it maintains the appearance. He drives it two to three times a week. But yes, it maintains the appearance, but beyond that, I wonder if actually he appreciates the value, forgetting its flaws... And its imperfections, he appreciates the inherent value in this particular machine, not value in terms of monetary value, but that Ferrari has a certain standing. It means something. And damn it, he's going to be devoted to that Ferrari, even with all those imperfections. And, And there's an immortality to it, perhaps. And that word comes up later in regard to their relationship. But I see the Ferrari as a little bit like he comes to see Henrietta. Despite all those flaws and imperfections, he does come to see some value in her. I think the status thing is key that he wants so desperately to cling to. If this film has any sort of social relevance, I mean, it's definitely... Okay, it's feminist in its very existence. Let's just say that. And we can maybe talk about how it's feminist in other ways, too. But to me, what was more at the forefront is as an economic or class critique, this sense of, you know, this came out in 71, so probably before the malaise of the 70s had really set in. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't really say that it's reacting to that. It certainly feels like it's reacting to the post-2008 recession and this desperate need that we still in America have to cling to wealth. Yeah, he is, to, he is delusional to, about he his is wealth. completely yeah. delusional about what he has, mm-hmm. what he's lost, and it just felt so relevant to that. I mean, the evening coat, getting dressed in his evening gown speaks to that that you talked about. The way he goes, when he finds he's lost his money and he goes on this goodbye tour right. of all his posh places, what I thought you were going to mention is he's in his house and he pets a statue. I love that scene. 
And then, and then the who butler. does he pet next? I know. <laughs> it's great. It's almost like he, he he values him just like he values the statue. That's, exactly. That's something he's going to lose, potentially. And yeah. we should say the butler is played by George Rose. He's so and good. he's so wonderfully dry. That, yeah, uh, he gets to so be good. maybe the definitive line. As they're having this conversation about what it's is he going to do movie. now. I know where you're going. He, he says, the butler says, in a country where every man is what he has, he who has very little is nobody very much. It's not delivered, you know, that. No. Broadly, it's as very I just matter did. of fact. It's very matter of fact. But that, to me, is what this movie is about. How yeah. this one man represents a country that really wants to live that way. Well, that's it. And it's actually the next line right after where you stopped. There is no such thing as genteel poverty here, sir. What he's saying is back in my country, you could be poor, but if you come from wealth, well, you're still upper class. Mm-hmm. It's not the way America works. And so that's very much something that's being expressed there, just in terms of some other great moments or lines that crack me up in this movie and i wonder if you have a few others as well the tea scene <laughs> ends with her spilling again and the woman who's hosting the party lambasting her mm-hmm. for her clumsiness and walter Matthau comes to her defense probably mainly because he's trying to earn her affection but also it gives him a chance to be really mean to this woman. And he describes her erotic obsession with her carpet as being the most grotesque thing he's encountered. And if you watch it, there is an old woman maid who's down on the floor scrubbing, actually trying to get the tea out of the carpet. And as soon as he says erotic obsession, her head just pops up into the frame <laughs> suddenly. Like like that catches her ear. What? That's a great visual moment. Let me just jump in and yeah. say I think that speaks to he doesn't really fit in this world either as no, much he as doesn't. he tries. Because you wouldn't say that even if you were trying to defend her. And it also – his his accent goes in and out. His posh accent oh, yeah. goes in and out. So he's a fraud, too. No, no, there is a little bit of that element. The other one, though, the line that cracked me up the most, the line that I knew I was going to be on board with this film because it happens around the 10-minute mark, and it's the scene with his banker, who has basically been keeping oh, him going, been keeping him afloat, but then finally the checks are starting to bounce, and he admits to Matthau's character that he actually paid a check out of his own pocket, $550, as he says, because he found it a relatively small price to pay to absolve him of any guilt. No one could say that he had any role in his Mm -hmm. downfall, Henry Graham's downfall, because, look, he even bailed him out with his own money at one point. And Mathal, the way he delivers this line and the fact that I'm assuming Elaine May wrote it. I don't suppose you'd care to give me an additional $6,000 and insure yourself against guilt permanently. (laughs) And his response that I mean, that's a mouthful. Mathau delivers it so perfectly and succinctly and so dryly that it's hilarious. It'll almost catch you off guard with how hilarious it is. And then the guy's response, and the guy, I should say, is William Redfield, who is a very good that guy, one of those faces along with George Rose, James Coco, Jack Weston in this film, who we've seen in other films, even if you don't really know them, and they're just a treat to watch. He says, you're perfect. Uh And that really does sum up his character. Like, as much as you want to hate him, the fact that he has the nerve to say that line, it makes you it makes you think he's perfect. It does. And that scene also speaks to the fact that Henry is much smarter than he comes off. This is a very willful financial ignorance he's undergoing here. And also Henrietta is similarly much smarter than she comes off. So I like that they have that in common. Yeah, probably a good place to end. But speaking of the ending. I just was reading this before we sat down to tape this discussion, and I'm curious whether you did dive in at all to some of the history of this film and the controversy about the supposed original cut of it that Peter, 
alluded to in the setup. Are you familiar it with that wasn't at all? Until because just today that I knew there was a director's cut because okay. a listener asked which one we were watching. That's right. And now I'll have to admit I'm a little confused because he was claiming that there is a longer version on iTunes mm-hmm. that you can watch, but everything I was reading, unless something has changed since these articles were published, basically said this version doesn't exist. The original huh. version that was supposedly Elaine May's cut was like three hours long. Oh wow. And Robert Evans, the studio chief, mm-hmm. said there's no way I'm releasing this three-hour movie, and he cut it down to the one hour forty-two minutes. I would have watched three hours of this. No, you would think that, Josh. You would think that, but this is what's remarkable. And another friend of the show, Callum Marsh, actually wrote about this in the Village Voice. If you look at what was supposedly in that original three-hour cut, it suggests that there was this lengthy subplot that involved Henry trying to murder Henrietta's lawyer. And there was a blackmailing scheme. And basically, he does, at one point, poison two people. Really? So imagine a version of this film where Matthau actually does commit murder. And again, without trying to spoil anything about how it actually ends, we alluded to the fact that there is kind of a happy ending. That ending still exists, but it's completely torn apart, or the way you view it is completely torn apart, based on everything that comes before it, all this additional stuff. It sounds horrible. I mean, it legitimately sounds like a case where we're always wanting to err on the side as critics, just as art lovers, of the artist and assume that a studio hacking up a movie could never be a good thing. But just based on what I've read about it, there's a part of me that genuinely thinks maybe Elaine May, who tried to take her name off the movie because of the fight with Evans, was really helped out by Robert Evans in this case. Could be. I mean, this is a mild black comedy, and that sounds like something that would have been far, far darker. But part of me, after enjoying this, thinks that Mathau might have been able to pull that off. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I encourage people, if you're curious, to see this movie and to read a little bit more about the background with the film. But definitely a great start to our Elaine May Marathon. The next film, three or four weeks away, we'll give you more details about the schedule as we get closer to it. But it is going to be actually the Heartbreak Kid, not Mikey and Nikki, that's next up in May's filmography. And that one is a little bit tougher to see, but we list some of the ways you can get your hands on the Heartbreak Kid over at our Marathons page. If you click on Elaine May, again, that's at filmspotting.net. Well, it's looking like Scarlett Johansson in a bathing suit or maybe Channing Tatum in a sailor suit are just too hard to resist. Find out next if the Coen brothers Hail Caesar still has a stranglehold on the film spotting pole. Stay with us. I make a kiss off of every shadow they melt when I've been abused. They see a helpless little fuck with his coat all messed up like it's something that I didn't choose. Yes, I deserve it and trust me, I Hey folks, quick interruption to remind you that we're very pleased to be supported by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. As the Sundance Film Festival just wrapped up, MUBI has wrapped up its 
Sundance Fest. They close it out with the movie Hoop Dreams, one of the most acclaimed films to ever play the festival. It's not just a landmark documentary, but a true American epic that caused a sensation on its release in 1994 and today ranks as one of the greatest works of nonfiction cinema ever made. I certainly agree with that sentiment. I don't think you'll get too many arguments there. On the other end of the spectrum, good movie. Positively reviewed here on Film Spotting, definitely not nonfiction, is Adventureland. Director Greg Matola took a look back for this coming-of-age comedy set in the summer of 87, with comic all-stars filling out the cast in a soundtrack of alt-rock classics. Adventureland premiered at Sundance in 2009 and follows its characters out into adulthood with surprising heart. If you missed Adventureland upon its release and seek it out now on Mubi, you will indeed hear an amazing soundtrack, at least one or two good Lou Reed tracks on there. And if you go back and listen to our review, you'll hear me regal listeners, Josh, with tales of my days working at Adventureland one summer. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna go listen to that right now. It was called Adventureland, but I did not work rides. I worked games. Okay. <laughs> Is there more to it? No. Should I go listen for more? Nah. Or was that about it? No, nah, that's about it. Okay. Another movie offering, Detropia, asked the question, what became of a once bustling city? Documentarians Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, they were behind Jesus Camp, focused their lenses on life in Detroit and emerged with an elegy to the American ideal. This also won the editing award at Sundance in 2012. I'm really curious about this movie partly because of the subject matter, but also because of those documentarians, who I believe have made at least one or two other films in addition to Detropia and Jesus Camp. I was not very fond of Jesus Camp, but I want to see how they've sort of evolved or how they have grown as documentarians since that first movie, Jesus Camp, and Detropia on Mubi might be my chance. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners get to try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. It was very peculiar because it wasn't hard on me at all. And it was strangely hard on Elaine. She had felt like she had to do it over and over and over. And I kept thinking, what is she talking about? It's less than two hours out of every 24. It's the perfect job. You know, cute people want you. We're famous. We have money. We just do our old thing. And we can't do any wrong. But Elaine wanted to do more. And I kept feeling the pressure of now they're paying a lot to see us. We got to deliver something. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Mike Nichols in a clip there from PBS's American Masters, Mike Nichols, directed by Elaine May. Nichols was talking about his successful partnership with May as an improv and sketch duo in the late 50s and early 60s. And it's just a little coincidental, Josh, that we were diving into our Satchajit Ray marathon last year at a time when we found out shortly after that... His films were being released in this special Criterion Collection edition. And here we're finally getting to the work of Elaine May, and she comes out with a new film. It's her first movie since Ishtar in 1987, the movie that will, of course, end our marathon. And this film, the documentary about Mike Nichols, is available to watch online until February 27th at PBS.org. I have DVR'd it, but not had a chance to watch it yet. What about you? I have not either. Just found out about it a few days ago. Also found out about May's involvement with Woody Allen's Amazon 
There you go. Series. That was the other thing, right? That She's supposedly has that Miley Cyrus sudden, in it. So yeah, and it's not a TV series; it's an Amazon an TV Amazon, series. Yeah, right, right. Exactly with Elaine May. So she's back, and the timing does just seem to be perfect. I like to think that we expressed our interest in doing this marathon what a year or two ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think these executives heard us say that mm. and thought, oh, "That's right. We should really give Elaine May some work." I'm sure that's exactly. What happened? Richard Brody from The New Yorker calls the documentary about Nichols a lovingly obsessive portrait. He's been a longtime champion of May's work. He calls her one of the best screenwriters and directors of her time. We will see if that shakes out over the course of this four film marathon. We did want to mention for our local Chicago listeners here that we've got some movie passes to give away. We always enjoy it when we can give away some free movie passes. One of them is The Witch. It opens February 19th here in Chicago, a film that got some good buzz at last year's Sundance Film Festival. We do plan to review it on an upcoming show. Josh, as I recall, you saw The Witch. You were intrigued by it. I can't remember if you were merely intrigued, but not totally moved, or if you were intrigued and moved. Which is it? I'll say both. I'm really eager to revisit it. And it was one of those bleary, I think it was a midnight screening, Mm -hmm. something like that. It's wild. So I would encourage listeners to take advantage of these passes and check it out. I can't guarantee that they'll enjoy it. Mm. It's a pretty crazy film, but it's something to see. And I do hope we get a chance to talk about it. The only question that matters, is it going to scare me? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, then we're not reviewing it. Why do you think I want to do it? (laughs) Will my wife be able to go with me and hold my hand? through it? That's probably the best tactic to take. (laughs) These passes are good for when the movie opens on February 19th. Anytime during its run of engagement here in Chicago, you can bring a guest to go see the movie. More information about that available in our top stories at filmspotting.net. There is where you can also enter to win Admit Two Passes to an advanced screening of A War. This is a movie that is an Oscar nominee for Best Feature Documentary. The screening is Thursday, February 18th at 7 p.m. at the Landmark Century Cinema right here in Chicago. The same director, I believe, who made A Hijacking, a film from a few years ago, that friend of the show and guest on our 2015 rap party, Mikado Murphy, said was his favorite of the year, I believe, or at least up there, A Hijacking, supposedly a really intense action thriller and now he's out with a war a movie i am really eager to see and if you are as well you can enter to win those passes at filmspotting.net hi adam hi josh this is dan from philadelphia i was just listening to the conversation about um the revenant and the hateful eight and i'm coming from an angle where i enjoyed both of these movies uh, i much preferred the hateful eight over the revenant and as i listened to the two of you discussing it I discovered that I, I kind of feel like you're comparing apples and oranges. But for one thing, there is a thematic element that I think both movies are coming at uh, from the same angle. And both are a comment on the fragility of civilization. Um, sure, things might seem all cozy inside, but in the big picture, maybe it's a little bit better to go outside. Also, I think that they're both on the same page when it comes to the volatility of vengeance. Uh, both movies have characters that are acting based on vengeance and well we see how that turns out anyway uh thanks guys keep it up in 2016 i love the show and if you want to hear my show you should check out i like to movie movie on itunes have a good one dan from philly there josh with such an even keel level-headed response to the hateful eight (laughs) and the revenant that has no place on film spotting what is he talking about did not sound like our conversation about it (laughs) he definitely makes a really compelling point about the comment both films could be making about the fragility of 
civilization. I think that is dead on with both movies. We also played that, not only because it was a great voicemail, and thank you for that, Dan, but there's been a lot of talk out there among listeners, whether on social media or sending us emails, we've been getting, as you might expect, a ton of responses to the movie. And so far, wouldn't you handicap it as Dan's in the minority in terms of feeling one way about both movies? A lot of people like us seem pretty split on them, yeah, whether they should be I or not. I would basically say I'm getting killed. I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's been, a shame. You know, I'm really broken up about surprise. that. Big <laughs> surprise. You know, you criticize Tarantino, <laughs> uh-huh. you might just get a little bit of negative mm. feedback. So I saw one or two. People come to my support. We're all just sheep, Josh. Um, You're right. And uh, so that was nice to see. That was encouraging. Yeah, you definitely have gotten a little bit. But as I pull all the feedback, I will have a challenge in trying to keep it even in terms of not just piling on. But that is what we are hoping to do. And something we actually may be trying out here at some point is doing some premium content, some true premium content. Listeners have been getting the opportunity to hear some bonus content if they buy our app. And sometimes it's only two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes. But and we let's really want to. It's been a while. It's been a long time. And what we really want to do is develop it a little bit more, make it a little bit more engrossing, hopefully a little bit more lengthy and really dive into your feedback and say some of the things maybe we didn't get to say about those films during the review. So in a lot of ways, it will be like a separate podcast now. Spoiler we'll talk, say. too, I think. Oh, we'll, spoiler we'll talk for sure. So this will be an opportunity movies. for that. Yeah, see both movies. Now, we will put on the table right now, we might charge for this premium content, hence the name premium content, but we promise you it will be very, very cheap. And if you're one of those people who has been thinking about, quote unquote, paying the dealer here on Film Spotting for a while, maybe trying to throw a little bit of your hard-earned cash our way, at least this way, you can do it and feel good about the fact that you are getting something extra in return. And no commitment, you know. No commitment. It's a one-time thing. After so. you hear it, you can say, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> That's fine. Let's hope it doesn't go that way. We will have more information about that upcoming premium content at some point here in the near future. Stay tuned to Film Spotting on Twitter and Facebook for more information. And, of course, we'll share it as well on the podcast. We are heading out to sea. And however it'll be. It ain't gonna be the same Cause no matter what we see When we're out there on the sea We ain't gonna see a dame We'll be searching high Well, we've seen how Channing Tatum can move. Let's see how he can sing. Crooning there, a number from the Coen Brothers' new film, Hail Caesar, which opens in wide release this weekend. Our review will come next week, so you have a chance to see it before we discuss it. And our top five is not going to be, Josh, our top five Coen Brothers scenes, because, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we've already done that here on Film Spot. I didn't get to do it. It's true you didn't, so maybe it's in need of a revisit. And as I look quickly at filmspotting.net, I see that it was way back in November 2007, a tie-in with No Country for Old Men. So there's a handful of Cohen films we could choose yeah. from. We'll, we'll revisit this one at yeah. some point, I think. Yeah, we definitely need to. In the meantime, we're going to share a variation on that, our top five Cone Brothers characters. I don't think that's going to be any easier. In fact, it might actually be harder. Yeah, this is going to be incredibly hard. Maybe we should split it 
among lead characters or support. Hmm. To me, like the first ones that come to mind, I don't know what this says about the Coen's films, are supporting characters. Check. You know, yeah, Check exactly. From Barton Fink. Or how many John Goodman yeah. performances could you pick from? I'll show so, you the life of the mind. I'm clearly obsessed with Barton wow, Fink. We're gonna, is, is this going to be a whole show of your impressions of Coen Brothers be. characters? It I might can't be. Wait. Stay tuned. I can't wait. <laughs> no, this is going to be hard, and um, we probably won't split it up that way, in no. which case it'll probably be a mix. Um, it's going to be tough. I haven't really delved into it yet. No, I haven't either. And you can get a head start on it. You can send us your picks for your favorite Coen Brothers characters and see if we'll include them on the show. Maybe, well, most likely you'll have something far more articulate to say than me, and I might just steal it to make my pick. I'm all for doing that. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Tying in with the Coen Brothers, though, anticipating this review of Hail Caesar, we asked you back a couple weeks ago on part one of our 2016 movie preview which highly anticipated film that's scheduled to open in the first half of the year were you most excited about? So we picked directors we love, and we picked films that we think a lot of listeners out there are probably excited to see. We put them in order of their release dates. So coming out first is Hail Caesar from the Coen Brothers. A month after that, Midnight Special. Finally, we're going to see Jeff Nichols and his take on sci-fi, the director of Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter. And everybody wants some Richard Linklater's film that's very similar, it seems, in some ways to Dazed and Confused in a lot of ways, which bodes well, I think, for a lot of people who are fans of that film. But instead of being set in the 70s, it's an ensemble film set in the 1980s. So, Josh, how did the poll come out? What are listeners most excited to see? This wasn't really very nice to do to Nichols and Linklater. 8% was the vote that everybody wants. Some got Big jump, though, up to Midnight Special, 30%, but that still means that 62% of the vote went to Hail Caesar. We heard from Keegan, who said, It's impossible for me not to be most excited for the zany extravaganza promised by the mere existence of Hail Caesar, but Midnight Special is definitely a close second. I've been waiting for Jeff Nichols to delve more fully into sci-fi since Take Shelter. I want to chalk it up to a horrible trailer, but boy, oh boy, everybody wants some just looks not good. But link later, I still have faith in you. It's got to be a bad trailer. Right, Keegan asks. I haven't watched it I have because not seen I don't want to see it. Either. And I don't put a whole lot of stock in them anyway, so I'm not going to let that deter me from being excited, even though Everybody Wants Some was the movie I picked third personally in those list of candidates. We also heard from Max O'Connell in Rapid City, South Dakota. It's a tough call between Hail Caesar and Midnight Special, but I'm going with the Coens. 50% of my interest is my love for their body of work. 25% of it is the promise of them reteaming with their No Country star Josh Brolin after he proved himself a deft comic actor in Inherent Vice, or Scarlett Johansson during the most adventurous period of her career so far, or George Clooney, who's done some of his best work with them. 20% is my excitement for whatever it is they're going to say about the Hollywood studio system after touching on the subject with Barton Fink, maybe my favorite film of theirs. And the remaining 5%? How hard I've laughed at the trailers, be it from the goofy look on Channing Tatum's face during a musical sequence or Clooney responding to an inquiry with an extended nervous grunt. Well done, Max. Devin from Long Island City, New York, wrote in, I love the cones. Having said that, I'm thinking I might see Midnight Special the day it comes out just to see if it lives up to three years of being in consideration for most anticipated. Michael Locker from El Cerrito, California, said, I have a vote here, but it comes with an asterisk. If Richard Linklater had spent recent hours birthing fabulously unexpected material, an experimental docudrama presented in rotoscope and a play adaptation set in a single motel room, 
maybe there'd be a real hunger for a comforting snack like everybody wants some. I'm sure this new movie is better than its lame trailer suggests. Another one. But there's not much to get excited about here. Michael continues, I'd love to cheerlead for Midnight Special. Difficult not to anticipate as a spiritual successor to take shelter. But am I alone with my uneasy feelings? Maybe it's the release date shenanigans. Maybe it's the trailer, which evokes literally hundreds of other titles featuring a child with unnerving power and the underdog effort to save them from men in suits. I fundamentally trust Nichols and believe he and Michael Shannon will elevate this stuff. But the apprehension is real. Maybe if I wasn't digging through Karina Longworth's MGM Stories season on the fabulous You Must Remember This, thanks guys, I'd be less interested in Hail Caesar. It looks precisely as though the Coens took the goofiest stories from Longworth's True Life Tales of Old Hollywood podcast and swirled them into a single candy-coated caper, one of the many genres they've mastered. It looks like a lot of fun. That said, am I chomping at the bit over Caesar? Not really. Like everybody wants some, I'm sure it was a blast to make, and it will probably do well at the box office. Like Linklater's Retro Trip, it strikes me as the kind of movie which will slot neatly into the brothers' oeuvre, a nice addition to their eventual box set. The Coens are at their best when completely earnest rather than winking. They're clever guys who wink, nudge really well, but when they shoot straight, as with Lewin Davis, No Country, True Grit, and Funny But Earnest Fargo, they really get my attention. So hail Caesar with an asterisk. Michael seems like a really hard guy to please. <laughs> that is a that's a really good question I want to look at though is are the Coens necessarily better when they get serious? I don't know mm. that that's true off the top of my head. I do have a ranking of their films. Yeah, letterboxed and um I'd like to see misguided where the, as most of your rankings are, but yes you do. What are you basing that on? What what's coming to mind? <laughs> my love for intolerable cruelty? I haven't seen I have, it. I have that pretty high. I haven't seen it, so I can't judge. I just assume that the oh, Coen brothers assume. like so many others. I've looked at it. I know I've looked at it. I thought you and were say, I just assume your list is misguided. No, I have looked at your list, and I remember feeling like there were a couple that were definitely in stark contrast to how I ranked them, Josh. Shocking. But I am glad that Michael brought up Karina's podcast, because that's what I've been thinking about every time I watch the trailer for Hail Caesar, which... Whether I like to see it or not, I have seen it because it's been on quite a bit, and I've seen it before a few movies that we've reviewed. But I listened to that MGM Stories series that Karina just finished up, and I feel like I will get a greater appreciation out of Hail Caesar Probably. just because I'll understand the studio system a little bit better. And I know that some of the characters in the movie, or at least I've been led to believe that some of the characters like the fixer in the film is sort of a takeoff on Eddie Mannix, mm -hmm. the fame fixer for MGM. So thanks to Karina, maybe I'll be a little bit more informed and get a few more of the Cone Brothers jokes. We close with Nate, who says, My most anticipated release for the first half of 2016, Night of Cups. Is the omission due to the possibility that Terrence Malick is not a film-spotting director we love? I cannot even begin to imagine that to be true. Cups might look like a complete rehashing of Tree of Life, but I'm definitely more intrigued by the trailer for Cups than these other three films combined. The Tree of Life 2, yes please, hail Malick. Hey, don't lump me in with Adam's disdain. I really like To the Wonder. You're the one who's down on that. And to be fair, we both had Tree of Life as our number one film we of did. 2011. That's so. whatever year. That's why Nate is incredulous that we might not be excited for a Malick film. We're excited. And in fact, that was one of my honorable mentions on part two of our 2016 preview last week. I included that question. Will we see any of these films from Terrence Malick? Supposedly he's got three of them, four if you count one of them being split up into two parts. Supposed to come out this year, Josh, but I'll believe it when I see it. And I think there's two reasons why Knight of Cups didn't get included in this poll. Well, three, if you count that death matches are always better when they're only two options. And we cheated a little bit and made it a third. But also, 
whether there's hard information about this out there or not, I just don't really believe a Malick film is coming out until I actually see it. So it didn't quite fit into that scheme. But beyond that, I do think there is just a little bit of hesitation about this film that you've been hearing about for a while now. It's kind of like what a previous listener said about Midnight Special mm-hmm. and Nichols. You know, it's been so anticipated now for at least a year, maybe more, that it's hard for me to get too excited about it. More often than not, a delayed release date uh, does not bode well, but we'll see. We will. Thank you to everyone who voted in the poll and who sent in some feedback. The Oscars are, of course, coming up. The ceremony is on Sunday, February 28th. And in two weeks, we're going to have a couple guest hosts here on the show, but very familiar voices, very comfortable voices for film spotting listeners. The great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune will be teamed up with Tasha Robinson. And we're not sure what movie they're going to review yet, but we do expect that they're going to devote a good chunk of the show to the Oscars and their picks and maybe some other Oscar-related categories. And that leads us to our current poll question, which is an Oscar-related question. We want to know which veteran actor and first-time Oscar nominee will you be rooting for on Oscar night? Charlotte Rampling of 45 Years, which we just reviewed last week. Very positively. Jennifer Jason Lee from The Hateful Eight. She even, I'll say, this is my positive thought mm. about The Hateful Eight, Adam. Well, one of the few I had. I'll take She's it. She's great. Mm-hmm. Mark Rylance from Bridge of Spies. He's actually a three-time Tony Award winner. Or Brian Cranston from Trumbo, who's won an Emmy five times for Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Where are you voting as of right this minute, Josh? Well, Charlotte Rampling is, I mean, it's hard because she is the lead. I like Jennifer Jason Lee's performance second best, Mm -hmm. but with Rampling being a lead and such a forceful, she is that movie. It's her story. So I'm going with that. Mark Rylance, I do think is quite excellent in Bridge of Spies. I haven't seen Trumbo yet. Yeah, I did. I just watched it a couple weeks ago and I see what all the criticisms that I've seen about the film are, which is mainly that it feels like a really trumped up costume show Mm -hmm. it feels that way there's no denying that and i actually think cranston's performance is part of the problem i overall do recommend the movie i think it's worth seeing not a great film but a film that is worth seeing and his performance is just such a weird sort of tightrope walk between being really grounded and being really human and also being a little bit cartoonish he seems to be at odds with himself to me between trying to make trumbo a real flesh and blood character and also trying to make him a little too larger than life with some of his affectations and the way he smokes and the glasses and all those things, the way he talks. The latter element is probably what got him the nod. I mean, that's That's how the Oscars work. I I think it is largely due to that, unfortunately. So I am conflicted about Brian Cranston's performance in Trumbo. Seen all four of them, really appreciate the other three, and my vote certainly goes to Charlotte Rampling. I mentioned that she is someone who I thought gave the best lead performance of the entire year, male or female. Now, in terms of who you're rooting for, really comes down to how familiar you are with their work. And I don't know that many people listening are really familiar with all the films Charlotte Rampling has made. And of course, her misguided comments that she made a couple weeks ago about the Oscars and the lack of diversity in the choices. They and may be more familiar with her from that exactly. than the film, Exactly, and that's probably going to prevent some people, I would say wrongfully, from rooting for her, though I understand people being upset about those remarks. I don't think it should detract from the performance, which is remarkable. So that's why I'm inclined to vote for her. But if it really came down to it, Josh, that question of who you're rooting for, someone like Jennifer Jason Lee who I think has been so underrated throughout her entire career, has never really been fully appreciated, but has always been good. 
I mean, when has she ever not been good in a movie, even when she's in less than great material? And I think there's a part of me, much more so than Charlotte Rampling, who would like to see Jennifer Jason Lee get some recognition. So I think maybe I've talked myself into voting for her. Well, we'll see what happens when the Oscars come down. If you do want to vote in that poll, you can do that at filmspotting.net. From the Hollywood elite to the financial elite, the film spotting top five comedies about the rich is up next. Stay with us. We're going to get to a very concise donation and thank you segment here in a moment, Josh. But first, a note about our featured artist this week from Madison, Wisconsin, Little Legend. You're hearing tracks from their new album, Orphan League Champs. More information at littlelegends.bandcamp.com. We actually just recently got an email from Joe with the band who said, we would be honored to be on your show again. I am an avid listener and love the show. This album is very influenced by Paul Simon, Harry Nilsson, and many others. And as far as new music goes, it is in the vein of bands like The War on Drugs, Vampire Weekend, and Local Natives. The War on Drugs and Local Natives, both bands who have been featured previously on Film Spotting. I'm a big fan. Vampire Weekend, I like their stuff, too, though I don't believe we have played them on the show before. We should probably do that soon. We should. One of the more recent live shows I managed to get to, yeah. and it was great. Yeah, you enjoyed it. I believe you and your lovely wife attended Vampire Weekend. Is that right, Josh? That's Along right. with your boating shoes, you put on My what? the blooker and no. went out and I didn't, I, you don't <laughs> enjoyed some yacht rock. Costume. No, Adam. you don't? No. No, but you did. <laughs> no. Sorry to disappoint Boating you. shoes with your yellow pants. Certainly you did. And we also had to get to one correction. It's a miracle. There's only one correction, at least that people decided to chime in with. But this is one, I swear, if you go back over the years since she became a thing and her name has been mentioned on film spotting, I guarantee you that I have gone back and forth between pronouncing her name different ways. Lisa Iannucci, I'm probably getting that name wrong. She's in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. She wants to set the record straight once and for all on how to pronounce the last name. It's just four letters, Josh. You'd think it would be easier. The last name of the actress nominated for Best Supporting Actress this year for the movie, Carol. Take it away. I've greatly enjoyed listening to your wonderful show for about the last year or so. However, I feel I must make one small pronunciation correction. I have lived within shouting distance and rivalry distance, too, of the New York football giants for most of my life, first in D.C., now in New Jersey. As you may know, they are owned by the Mara family. As you also know, the Mara daughters, Rooney and Kate, are well-known and acclaimed actresses. But I must comment on your pronunciation of their surname, which is slightly off. The Mara family has always pronounced their surname as Mara, not Mara. 
I've heard journalists and fans alike pronounce it this way ever since I can remember, which has been close to 50 years now. So every time I hear you say it the latter way, I cringe and then yell, Mara, back at my mobile device, whereupon my husband looks at me like I'm nuts. Well, he can't help it. He's a Jets fan. Can I just say real quick that I love the notion of this little comedy playing out so much between Lisa and her husband that I think we just need to keep butchering it. (laughs) And somehow find a way to say Rooney Mara every episode. That's what I mean. Yeah, (laughs) I like it. Anyhow, Lisa says, I do hope you will see fit to take my advice to heart. It's Rooney Mara rhymes with marinara, not Mara rhymes with tiara. She's so helpful. Uh Thanks so much. Are you on board, Josh? Lisa, be assured (laughs) I have entered it. This way in the official film spotting pronunciation guide. That does exist. We we have. I never reference it. Everyone's disbelief, but it exists. We do have one. Mara is in there now. Rooney, Mara. What good it'll do? We'll see. Maybe she's trying to reject the family. She's trying to reject the aristocratic life, and she's going to be the edgy actress, and she's going to come up with her own pronunciation. Whatever but, you have to tell yourself. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to go with. So I said it'd be a concise donation segment. We are, of course, very blessed to have a lot of subscribers who send us a monthly donation, whether it's $2 or $5 or even $10. We thank all of them, but we only got one new donation that I'm aware of this week, and it comes to us from Christopher Reese in Lexington, Kentucky, who listeners will remember from his Dr. Shivago infamy. I was happy this morning to make a donation to the show, which was long overdue. I went with a variation on the buck a show donation, but instead of going with a buck, I went with two bucks per show. The first buck is for the same reason that others donate. The show is awesome. One of the best podcasts ever, et cetera, et cetera. The second buck I feel you deserve because of all the crap you guys have to put up with from me, including some of the later items on the agenda for this email. Be warned. Yeah, indeed. We did not dive into all of them and we print them here. (laughs) You do not have to read this or even acknowledge this donation on the show if you do not want to. I think Film Spotty Nation has heard enough from me for the time being. Yeah, indeed, Dr. Shivago, and also wrote in, even before he heard what we were doing this week with Elaine May, strongly encouraging us to pick up the pace with our marathons and also the blind spotting. He is really eager for us to take on Buñuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And we did say we were going to do that, like we said we were going to do the Elaine May Marathon over a year ago, and it hasn't happened yet. Christopher had a long list for us. He's sort of crossing the line here from harassment to bribery. (laughs) That's it. I prefer bribery. Yeah, I do as well. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Greetings, Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit with a gratuitous plug for our latest episode, where Allison Wilmore and I joined Spike Lee for a trip to film spotting country for a discussion of his controversial hip-hop sex comedy, Chirac. And I've just returned from the Sundance Film Festival, so I'll be sharing this year's highlights. Plus, Matt will help you win your Oscar pools by handicapping this year's short film categories. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. The Art House is now in your house. Hey, I'm Ty Sheridan. And I'm David Gordon Green, the director of the film Joe, and we're here on Film Spotting. Sickle,
chose de savoir écouter. Dans ce cas, ça n'a pas été inutile. J'en suis très fière. Et j'ai éprouvé le besoin, je vous l'ai dit maintenant. <rire> Bravo, Christophe. Oh, ma tante, que je suis heureuse. Voilà. Ben, moi, je suis d'avis de donner une fête, une grande fête en l'honneur de Jurieux. Excellent. Bon, nous jouerons la comédie. Nous nous déguiserons. C'est ça, nous nous déguiserons. Enfin, on essaiera de s'amuser entre nous le plus librement possible. Quand faisons-nous ça, mon génie This is film spotting. That was Jean Renoir's 1939 masterpiece, pretty universally regarded as a masterpiece, Rules of the Game. It's a movie that takes place at a lavish country chateau and is a comedy of manners. And I don't know about your list, Josh, but movies that take place at lavish country estates and are comedies of manners factors in heavily with my top five. So I felt it was only appropriate to call this the Rules of the Game Memorial Top 5 list. Are you on board? I concur. It's been on at least one other list of mine, maybe two. It's it's one of those films that for some reason seems like it could fit. It's so expansive. Mm-hmm. It takes on so much and does it so well. It could almost fit on every list, it feels like. Yeah, I think that speaks to why it's so highly regarded. Speaking of rules of the game, did you have any rules to forming this top five, which was inspired by, we didn't just randomly pull this out. It was inspired by our discussion earlier in the show, the first film in our Elaine May marathon with Walter Matthau and Elaine May, A New Leaf, very much a comedy of manners that doesn't take place at a lavish country estate, though there are a few scenes at lavish estates. Did you, though, have any guidelines to forming your list? Nothing really set in stone. It occurred to me as I was putting it together that some of these are maybe not masterpieces like rules of the game, but Mm -hmm. they speak really well to either lampooning the rich or satirizing the rich. And so uh, maybe there's a film that I didn't give four stars towards the top of my list. But again, what it what it's doing with the topic we chose is so funny, so incisive that Mm -hmm. it found its way up there. Okay, I think the only one really I thought of was I did try to keep it to movies that were about rich people. And if that sounds obvious, what I mean is they're the protagonists, not about characters trying to get rich. So, for example, a movie like Howard Hawks's musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes could have made a case for it because there are many rich people involved directly in the plot. The main characters, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, of course, interact with them a great deal. And you have songs like Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. The whole movie is about money and about that relationship between two characters, one who believes in true love no matter how rich the man is and another one who believes true love only relates to how rich the man is. So I considered it, but again, they're not the main characters and they're not wealthy and I didn't feel like it applied. So I did try to use that to help whittle down my list a little bit. I may have one that breaks that rule, but that's good. Then it means it's not on your list. Okay. You're number five. I could get some resistance on this one being a comedy, but I do have a Twitter poll to back me up Hmm. on it. When I asked whether Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring was a comedy or a drama, where would you answer, Adam? It's not a comedy. (laughs) Oh, I know. (laughs) Well, you would have been not among the 53% who did vote that Hmm. it was a comedy. Send your complaints to Twitter. I'm not going to hear them. It's official as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) It does strike me as a dark comedy. It did when I first watched it, and uh, it came to mind pretty quickly when I was thinking about movies for this list. It's based on actual reports of a group of California teens who burglarized a string of celebrity homes. This was around 2009, I think. Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan were among the victims. Now, in Coppola's hands, it becomes this comic satire about contemporary youth values, It's interesting to me that these kids, they're 
they aren't necessarily after the material things because they're all rich themselves. These are all really well-off kids. They're not necessarily after the victim's fame because obviously they can't go public with what they're pulling off here. But it's some sort of potent combination of the two that that they're trying to attain by doing this, uh, this combination of wealth and celebrity that only wealthy celebrities, only these targets have attained. So after their robberies, part of the ritual for these kids is to don um, the items that they've stolen and use the cash that they found laying around in these mansions. And then they go to nightclubs. And what do they do? They pretend essentially to be Paris Hilton or Lindsay Lohan. So it's the identity and the lifestyle that they really want to rob here. Mm -hmm. Another argument for this as a comedy, I would say Emma Watson's scarily funny performance as one of the teens. She's probably the most diabolical opportunist of the bunch. So it's a satirical turn uh, along the lines, I would say, of Nicole Kidman's in To Die For. There's Hmm. some similarities there. And I would really recommend The Bling Ring if you haven't seen it for Watson's performance. Yeah, I really like Emma Watson's performance in that film. And I like some of the cinematography as well. I don't recall you being that big of a fan of the movie. And I know you said maybe you didn't love every pick. It kind of falls into this category, yeah, where just the subject matter was so fitting. Yeah, it's perfect. I was pretty mixed on the film. I would argue that Sofia Coppola has made two other films, of course, very much about rich people. But are they comedies that are better, Lost in Translation, and even Somewhere, I think, is a better movie probably than The Bling Ring, but not as funny. I do, actually. I'm a little bit higher on that film. My number five, man, I really had trouble with this, largely because a lot of these films I'm going to mention are films I haven't seen in at least eight or ten years, some even going back further than that. But this one is a movie that just came out the year before The Bling Ring. It's from 2012. And I'm going to go with a Whit Stillman film. And before I say which Whit Stillman film, I'm going to mention Facebook. If you can mention Twitter, I'm going to mention Facebook. You put on your Facebook page, Josh, which comedies about the rich should we consider? What are your favorites? And someone said, well, you got to have some Whit Stillman Andre, on right, there. Yeah. yeah. And you were like, well, that's great, but I'd have to have seen a Whit Stillman film. And then I decided to get a little snarky and I replied with, they'd have to be funny yeah. to be comedies. And so Getting I'm going to try to. snarky on yeah. my Facebook page. Yeah, I was. We're I was. a little classier there usually. <laughs> oh, is that how so it works? Try not to bring it down when you Duly show up. Duly noted. Duly noted. But I'm going to try to atone for that a little bit by including a Whit Stillman film. It's not his most famous film or even his most famous two or three movies, but it's the 2012 movie Damsels in Distress starring Greta Gerwig. And just briefly on Stillman, I have not seen Barcelona and I've always felt bad about that because I think many regard it as his best film and I've always been eager to see it, but I don't love Metropolitan. I think Last Days of Disco is okay when I saw it, when it came out. Not a film I've given a whole lot of thought to and probably worthy of a revisit. There's one or two others mixed in there that I just have not ever been enamored with. There's something about the sense of humor of those Whit Stillman films that just never resonated with me. And something about Damsels in Distress, maybe it was Gerwig's performance, finally did. It's a movie that takes place at a college where Greta Gerwig plays Violet, who is kind of the leader of this trio of girls who take in a new girl, Lily, played by Annalie Tipton, who they see at student orientation and decide that she belongs in their crew. And this is one of those movies that tests our definitions a little bit of wealthy because It's not clear that any of them are rich, but they are at a college that at least one character in the film describes as an elite college. And they certainly don't seem worried about money in any way, shape or form. So I think it probably does count. But even beyond that, 
where this movie really ties in is with a movie like A New Leaf, where you have the Henry Graham character played by Walter Matthau, who is concerned above all else, it seems, with civility. He's all about order and proper form. That's the thing that bugs him the most about Elaine May's Henrietta is that mm-hmm. she's just kind of a barbarian in his eyes. And you watch a movie like Damsels in Distress, all the humor is derived from the way they view their fellow students and how they, even within this college setting, operate like social elites. And they're all about trying to have sort of a code to how they behave. And everything is about proper etiquette and behavior at all times. So the whole movie becomes really a bunch of lessons, them handing down their wisdom and trying to get the Lily character on board with their brand of civility. In my view, handsome men are to be avoided. I don't even consider good looks to be flattering a man. Do you know what I mean? No. Cookie-cutter, good-looking guys with their chiseled features running around full of themselves, getting everything they want, never suffering or experiencing We suffered? We're not under discussion. That's irrelevant. It's besides the point. Damsels in Distress, my number five. I do need to see any Whit Stillman picture, so maybe Damsels is where I'll start. My number four is the one that I was thinking of where it's someone who is aspiring in a way to be amongst the wealthy and the upper class. It's A Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers I considered it. Okay. Because, I mean, it takes place completely in the world of wealth. Yeah, 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 but obviously the main characters. No, that's a good point. (laughs) The Marx Brothers, not wealthy, but they're they're aspiring to be wealthy, or at least Groucho is here. And that's a bit of a distinction for this film as, as we saw when we did our Marx Brothers marathon about two years ago now, I think. This was my favorite among those. Now, the rich in a lot of the others are often the object of scorn, I would say. And here, Groucho is trying to join the dark side. He plays Otis P. Driftwood, this personal business manager who's hoping to climb the social ladder by getting a client in a role with the New York City Opera Company. One of the movie's classic set pieces, which I've talked about before, reflects these aspirations. It's the game of musical beds, remember, uh, where they're in this upscale suite and a police officer comes in and he's trying to kick them out, saying they, they don't belong there. At the root of all the silliness, of course, is Groucho's desire to pass off this luxury apartment as his own. So the joke, you know, throughout the movie really is that Groucho's incapable of fitting in in this way. He, he just can't help himself. He will never be a member of the upper class. Uh, much of the movie's comic verve comes from him repeatedly failing at this attempt, or often he's being undermined by his brothers Chico and mm-hmm. Harpo. And and I'll I'll even admit here, Harpo's he's very funny. He's even charming in in this one. Yeah, as I recall during our Marx Brothers marathon, I mean, you hated you hated Harpo, but I think we both kind of liked him in this movie. Yeah, he's he's really good here. As I said, one of the films I did consider, but did leave off as an honorable mention. My number four is a movie that inspired Woody Allen's A Midsummer Night sex comedy. It is Ingmar Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night, a movie that if I tried to list all the members of this ensemble and actually describe to you the plot, we'd be here for an extra 20 minutes. Can't get into all the particulars of each character, but I can tell you that It includes Harriet Anderson and Gunnar Bjornstrand, two of his regulars who are fantastic, as they always are. And the movie does end and spend a good deal of its running time at an estate in the Swedish countryside. One of the characters' mother invites all these different characters and all these different couples out to her country house, and they stay awake all night. And 
They do what characters do in Bergman films. They do have a little bit of lovemaking, and they do a little bit of imbibing, but they mainly do a lot of talking, and included with that talking is a little bit of fighting between the couples as well. And one of the reasons I picked it for this list, Josh, was because even though not every character in the film is lavishly wealthy, the movie is very much about this dichotomy between old lovers and young lovers and their different views of the world. And only characters who are this unconcerned about money can be so concerned about all these other unknowable existential issues. And my favorite scene in the movie, and I believe it's Bjornstrand, who's talking to one of the younger characters, he says to him, you are young, the moon is out, you have passed your exam, you have champagne, a girl who is decidedly attractive, yet you are unhappy. The expectations of youth and the younger man protests, I don't love her. And he says, so much the better. It's just such a great bit that underlines so much of what this movie is about. The camera work is really interesting in it for a comedy for Bergman. Of course, comedies are rare for Bergman, and this is one that was a huge hit. It was such a big hit that it kind of set the table for him to do whatever he wanted down the road. But even within this comedy structure, there are some of the shots that Bergman becomes famous for later. They don't have the same starkness to them. The images maybe aren't quite as arresting, but some of the same positions that he has actresses in will mimic things we'll see later in movies like Persona and Autumn Sonata. Pauline Kael said this about Smiles of a Summer Night, if I haven't sold you already. Bergman found a high style within a set of boudoir farce conventions. In Smiles of a Summer Night, boudoir farce becomes lyric poetry. The sexual chases and the round dance are romantic, nostalgic. The coy bits of feminine plotting are gossamer threads of intrigue. The film becomes an elegy to transient love, a gust of wind, and the whole vision may drift away. Yeah, when you think of a list, comedies, Bergman wasn't the first director no. that came to mind, but you made it work. Nicely done. My number three is Clueless, Amy Heckerling's 1995 riff on Jane Austen's Emma. It's set in a contemporary Beverly Hills high school, and this came out in the era of Beverly Hills 90210, which in retrospect, I think we can all say was also a comedy. I'm sure you were a big fan, didn't miss it. Any week, right, Adam? Mm, I never did get you into 90210, oh, but sad. I'm a big fan of Clueless. <laughs> Good. I think there was a general fascination around that time uh, with lifestyles of the young, rich, and famous, something that Coppola maybe tapped into a bit later with the bling ring. And Huckerling made that trend, I'd say, about as smart, as funny as it could be in Clueless. I was watching a bunch of scenes to refresh my memory, and uh, th they're really hysterical and even Interestingly, one sequence where Alicia Silverstone's share makes a fairly cogent proposal that would apply to the current debate about what to do with Syrian refugees. So, okay, like right now, for example, the Hadians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? But it's like when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit-down dinner. But people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, redistribute the food, squish in extra place settings. But by the end of the day, it was like, the more, the merrier. And so, if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. What I like about Silverstone's performance and really the attitude of the movie in general is how good-natured 
it is. Even it's spoofing these for sure. The ridiculous lifestyle. Yeah. Absolutely. But it has a real affection and genuine care absolutely. for all of the characters. And I should mention some of the rest of the cast. It's one of those movies you look back on um, and remember, oh, that's right. The, mm-hmm. You know, so-and-so was in it. So Paul Rudd as Cher's stepbrother. Brittany Murphy, really good as the ugly mm-hmm. duckling that she takes under her wing. And then Stacey Dash, of course, as her best friend. Yeah. Dan Hedaya, one of the ultimate that guy as, as dad, yeah. her father <laughs> yeah. in that movie as well. Yeah, big fan of Clueless, an honorable mention for me. As I was putting this list together and was lamenting whether or not there were really enough good choices, our wonderful producer Sam tried to put me at ease by pointing out that basically all the movies we watched as part of our screwball comedy marathon way back in 2006 here on Film Spotting were basically contenders for this list. And he's right. As I look over the list of movies, I think at least four of them, maybe five of the six, would qualify as comedies about the rich. And I have two that made my top five. The first of those, my number three choice, The Thin Man from 1934, the first of five Thin Man movies. Of course, they were based on the final novel by the brilliant, hard-boiled fiction writer Dashiell Hammett. And this is a murder mystery, and it's a detective story. But At its core, it is a romantic comedy. It is a screwball comedy because the humor and the gags come flying fast and furious in the film. And Myrna Loy and William Powell as the leads, Nick and Nora Charles, this married couple who does some investigation work and enjoys their alcohol and enjoys their banter between each other. They are so wonderful. And as I went back to my notes from the Screwball Comedy Marathon, I singled out this scene, and I do want to play a little bit of it here, where Nora Charles, at the end of the scene, asks Nick, as she joins him at a table for dinner, how many drinks have you had? And Nick says, this will make six martinis. And Nora says to the waiter, all right, will you bring me five more martinis, Leo? Line them up right here. So it's this sense of this great camaraderie, but also this great equality in their marriage, right? That she's like, okay, you've had six drinks. Well, by golly, I get six drinks as well. And it seems like their banter actually, Josh, is intended to or functions to entertain themselves as much as it is there to entertain anyone else. They yeah, have that sure. kind of banter, even as it is just the two of them, and they have no audience. Pretty girl. Yeah, she's a very nice type. You got types? Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Leo, compliments to see you. Who is she? Oh, darling, I was hoping I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice. When I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? Say, how many drinks have you had? A lot of these screwball comedies came out during the Great Depression or shortly after. And maybe it's not so surprising that so many of them were comedies about the rich because you had people who were very destitute at the time, who were down on their luck, going to the movies for pure escapism. And certainly with a movie like The Thin Man. And those performances and those characters in Nick and Nora Charles, you understand why audiences could go and revel in that escapism and, of course, envy these characters to an extent, but ultimately truly empathize with them and see them probably as your friends or friends you would ultimately like to have. Because I think when you watch the film, you realize that they're not really defined by their wealth. That's not what makes them such an engaging couple or engaging individuals. 
at one point I had three movies from the 30s on my list. So I think you're definitely onto something there. Right now, though, for number two, I'm going to go back even further to 1923. I haven't seen enough of the work of silent film comedian Harold Lloyd. So when listener Brian Dar suggested why worry for this list, I thought I'd check it out. And it turned out to be great fun and really was perfect for this list. Lloyd plays a wealthy hypochondriac businessman here who's traveling to this sleepy island. It's off the coast of South America for recuperative purposes. Little does he know that the island's in the midst of a revolution when he arrives. The central gag is that the Lloyd character, who's named Harold Van Pelham. I don't I don't know why, Adam, all of these snooty, rich characters in movies get Dutch names. Mm-hmm. What's behind that? I don't but. know. I'm offended, though. <laughs> He's so self-involved, this guy, and invested in his own 1% status that he can't fathom that everything around him might not involve his own personal comfort. And just one example of this, he's actually being marched to jail by soldiers at this point, which he doesn't realize. He thinks he's being escorted to the luxury hotel. But he takes the sombrero and the sword from one of these soldiers and fashions this makeshift umbrella out of it for himself for protection from the sun. So there's a lot of stuff like that going on. And there are clearly personal implications to this. You know, the ugly American abroad stereotype Mm -hmm. is what's being lampooned here. But I think also when you consider the time frame, it's really prescient in terms of a national characterization. It's interesting to consider that this would have come out when the U.S. was still fairly isolationist. And so it almost feels like a predictor of sorts of the interventionist, uh, imperialist meddling that would kind of become standard foreign policy in the wake of World War II and and really through today. So Mm. I'll back up from all that sort of stuff, though, and just say that. This is really funny, too. Hmm. I mean, a lot of great gags, and it shows off the acrobatic skills of Lloyd. Um, It's well worth your hour on YouTube, which is where I found it. Hmm. I've mentioned this a few times that back when I was in college taking film classes, I took a class on Chaplin and Keaton. But in order to understand Chaplin and Keaton, we did watch stuff from other comedy legends, Mm -hmm. silent comedy legends like Harold Lloyd. I can't remember. It was so long ago if that was one of the films we watched in whole or in part. But I'm with you in terms of needing to see more of Harold Lloyd. I mentioned The Thin Man there at number three. A dinner party plays a key role in the ending of that film as they unmask the culprit behind the crime. Well, A Dinner Party is virtually the whole movie for my number two. And I know a lot of people out there are probably hoping I'm going to pull out Luis Buñuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Alas, it is still among my biggest blind spots the movies i most admit it out for i know list. i know and i really thought this was going to be my chance it didn't happen but i can go with another buñuel film that has come up a few times on the show over the past three years or so but only really is an honorable mention it's only made one top five and it was my top five survival movies in 2013 the movie is the exterminating angel and this is a comedy less in the jokey sense or the gag sense and more in the totally absurd satirical sense and the basic premise is that a bunch of people get together for a lavish there's that word again a lavish dinner party and they find themselves after the dinner all kind of hanging around and eventually just laying down on the floor or on couches and they all stay and what they realize ultimately is they can't leave there are no actual barriers there's nothing physically holding them back from leaving the house but something psychologically is actually impeding them from leaving. And I would love to just read some of the plot description of this film that gives you some of the truly insane things that happen over the course of their time in this house as they try to undo whatever spell has been cast on them. But 
I won't bore you with those details, especially because if you haven't seen it, you just need to see it and be part of the genuine surprise, the genuine shock, really, if you will, of some of these moments that Buñuel offers to us. And I think you can pretty easily see what he's probably getting at in terms of Spain, even though the movie was made in Mexico, and an allegory in terms of what he is trying to say about the upper class and how they perhaps have become so complacent and so set in their ways that they can't get out of this aristocratic bourgeois rut that they are in. But there's a whole lot more going on in the film than that simplistic reading. It's a fascinating film, The Exterminating Angel. I'm going to go back to one of those 1930s films that you were probably referring to uh, with my number one, It's Holiday. This is George Cooker directing Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, the same trio of The Philadelphia Story, which also I think could have been on this list. I went with Holiday, though, because wealth is more than a backdrop in this one compared to The Philadelphia Story. Really, it's at the forefront of the movie's concerns. Grant plays a rising self-made businessman who's about to marry the daughter of a financing tycoon, but then he meets his fiancée's sister, who's played by Hepburn, and she's somewhat the black sheep of the family. He quickly realizes, though, that she has this irreverent attitude towards business and money that's actually closer of a match to how he feels about those things. And so from that point on, this romantic tangling begins. I'd say that the Philadelphia story goes out of its way to insist that the rich have feelings, too. And with that cast, you know, it's it's easy to buy. But here, Holiday's a little bit clearer about the, the perniciousness of wealth. And you see it in, I think, the characterizations. You have Grant's fiance, played by Doris Nolan, who's this pampered socialite. We also meet her father, Henry Colker, who's this heartless meddler. And her brother, played by Lou Ayers, is a bullied drunk. Meanwhile, on the other side, if you will, you have Grant's middle-class friends who show up, played by Edward Everett Horton and Gene Dixon. And they're portrayed as just witty and decent regular people. Of course, add on to this that you have the skeptical Hepburn as the movie's conscience, and you can kind of see where its bearings are. So there's definitely some social critique going on here, but also a ton of laughs and you know wonderful chemistry hmm. between Grant and Hepburn. 1938 is uh, when Holiday came out. I've seen the Philadelphia story. Don't love it as much as most people do. For whatever reason, I'm also not a fan of bringing up baby while we're just saying heretical things <laughs> here on the show. But Holiday is one I very much need to see. My number one is my favorite film from that previously mentioned film spotting screwball comedy marathon. It's Preston Sturgis's Sullivan's Travels. And you mentioned a social critique. This movie is certainly trying to get it a social critique. It's also very much a Hollywood critique. The premise being that Joel McRae goes into the studio. He has made previously funny movies and they've been big hits, and now he's decided he wants to, like Frank Capra, make a movie with some substance and say something about the plight of the poor and disenfranchised in America. And I could go on and on about how it's perfect for this list, how it's maybe a perfect film. I mean, I really love and adore Sullivan's Travels, but I think this is one, Josh, where that opening scene, that amazing dialogue, the rapid-fire humor of it, and... The rapid fire way it's delivered and just the way the studio execs do cut down what McCray's director has to say and put him in his place in making him realize that he really has no authority whatsoever to be out there trying to tell the story for the poor and what the perils of that might be. I think it really does say it all. 
There isn't any work, there isn't any food. These are troublous times. What do you know about trouble? What do I know about trouble? Yes, what do you know about trouble? What do you mean, what do I know about trouble? Just what I'm saying. You want to make a picture about garbage cans. What do you know about garbage cans? When did you eat your last meal out of one? Well, what's that got to do with it? He's asking you. You want to make an epic about misery. You want to show hungry people sleeping in doorways. The newspapers around them. You want to grind 10,000 feet of hard luck. And all I'm asking you is, what do you know about hard yes. luck? Yes. What do you mean, what do I know about hard luck? Don't you think no. I've... What? Yeah, I'm not. I saw newspapers till I was 20, then I worked in a shoe store and put myself through law school at night. Where were you at 20? Well, I was in college. When I was 13, I supported three sisters and two brothers and a widowed mother. Where were you at 13? I was in boarding school. I'm sorry. Where Always remember, Josh, if people in Pittsburgh knew what they wanted, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. Got it. As long as we know that, I think we can move on. Those are our top five comedies about the rich. Josh, did you have any honorable mentions? Sullivan's Travels was okay. one of them. Kind Hearts and Coronets with mm-hmm. Alec Guinness playing yeah, multiple good movie. parts, aristocratic family there. Billy Madison, were you worried? <laughs> I was going to put that on there. I no, threw it out early great. on and you thought, no, if, if <laughs> Billy Madison makes your list, we shouldn't be doing this list. I yeah, believe that was okay. your. I might have said that. That was <laughs> private consumption. I couldn't quite just fit it on. I really wanted to. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. There's a couple here from, I think that's 80s, right? Dirty Rotten so. Scoundrels, uh, Trading Places. These are ones I just haven't seen in a long time and would want to revisit before putting them on the list. Other silent comedians, Chaplin and Keaton, you both mentioned. Chaplin City Lights, Keaton oh, probably man. The Navigator. How did I some, overlook them completely? Some good options there. And then a couple of Capra comedies here. It happened one night and Mr. Deeds goes to town. The original, not the Adam Sandler. Mr. Deeds, though, obviously Which you're a big Adam Sandler I'm, fan. I, I do like the Sandler version. Really? I like it. See, I saw that and thought it was pretty terrible. Can't remember if I've seen the original Would you rank or not. it below Billy Madison? That's way, the important question. Way, way, <laughs> below Billy Madison, Josh. I actually kind of enjoy Billy Madison. Clueless, already mentioned on your list. That's one of the ones I considered. And other movies you mentioned, those 80s films for me were Trading Places, Coming to America, both Eddie Murphy, Brewster's Millions. I used to love oh, yeah. that Richard Pryor <laughs> film where he inherits $30 million, I think, but he has to spend it within 30 days or something. And if he does, he'll get $300 million. John Candy in that movie, I saw that film a hundred times when I was eight or nine years old. Formative, and I also, huh? formative, I also used to love, man, I used to love the Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn flick, Overboard. Oh, yeah. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah. Where he like lives out in the woods with his three sons. He's a single dad and he's a craftsman and he has to build something on her yacht and she's just the worst snob in the world with her husband and she falls overboard and he rescues her and she has amnesia and he convinces her that she's really his wife and the mother of those kids. Not quite a 1930s screwball comedy. No, it's not, but for some reason, I loved it. Another Preston Sturgis movie, The Palm Beach Story, A Night at the Opera, you mentioned. Harold and Maude. I did consider the Royal Tenenbaums, even though wasn't sure if it quite qualified. It happened one night, a great pick. Roman Holiday, a great pick, though less a movie for me about the rich, though she is, and more about someone who's royal, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. who is more isolated, discovering the world. The Lady Eve, another film from our Screwball Comedy Marathon. And a listener on Facebook, I can't remember if it was on our page or your page, Josh, John De Cesaro, who had a couple unconventional choices that I feel like are at least worth honorably mentioning. The Wolf of Wall Street, Martin Scorsese. There are funny elements. I don't really see it as a comedy. Then a couple of documentaries, The Queen of Versailles, yeah, I saw and that mentioned. Grey Gardens from the Maisels, both stories about real people. They are documentaries. Grey Gardens so sad, though. Exactly. And I think The Queen of Versailles, you would agree, is probably that yeah, sad yeah. as well or close. And yes, they are funny, 
but I would say certainly not in an intentional way. And what we find ourselves sometimes is just not being able to stop ourselves from at least chuckling at just the absurdity of yeah, the characters. There, there's disbelief right? going so, on. Yeah, they're just so delusional, which is a different type of comedy altogether. I guess how can I rattle off all these picks and not mention a certain gem from 2015, The Big Short? It kind of goes hand in hand with The Wolf of Wall it Street. It does. It does. I mean, I'm I want to go back that. to your comment about Wolf of Wall Street not really being a comedy. I think it's very, I, one of the problems I had with it is I know, you didn't think it was funny. And to it's be trying. Funny. Right. So I, I don't see it that same way. It would have so. fit in the list, I think. That would okay. have been eligible. All right. If you, in fact, thought it was a good movie, right? It's no bling ring. I'll say that about <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street. Those are our top five comedies about the rich. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at Filmspotting. That's Adam at Larson on Film is me. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, take a moment to vote in the current film spotting poll. Which first-time Oscar nominee would you most like to see win an Oscar this year? Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend, the Arabian Nights trilogy. This is a three-part contemporary set adaptation of the classic story from Portuguese director Miguel Gomes. Boy and the World, an Oscar nominee for Best Animated Feature from Brazil. And out in wide release, The Choice, another Nicholas Sparks adaptation, and Pride and Prejudice and zombies. But the big release, at least for us, and probably many of our listeners, Josh, is the Coen Brothers Hail Caesar. Next week, we will share our review of Hail Caesar and share our top five Coen Brothers characters. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Little Legend. More information is at littlelegend.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.